Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Why, obviously, it's the greatest book ever written. Well, we are continuing our series on A Closer Look at 12 Ordinary Men. This is what I'm going to do differently. Uh, Today marks, I believe it's session 27 of this. So after tonight, I'm hitting the pause button on this series simply because the one thing that I don't want you to do is become oversaturated with the information that you get to a point where you almost start to become desensitized to what we're discussing. Because to be very, very frank with you, this subject matter is very, very interesting. And I don't want you to get to a point where you're like, okay, it's the same old thing and we're just not doing it. So with the Holy Spirit, I mean, cause you know, I was talking to him about it and then he brought to my remembrance, the fact that if you go to any university and say, for instance, you take accounting 101, you don't take accounting 101 for two or three years. Well, that's if you pass all your classes. You, know, you take accounting 101 and then you go to the next level. It's still the subject of accounting, but you move on to the next one. So we're going to press the pause button after tonight, which means I really got to hope I can get all of this in. And I already forgot to start my clock. Okay. That we can get all of this in because I want to leave it with a cliffhanger. (laughs) So anyway, that's what I decided that we're going to do. And what my next subject matter is going to be, he hasn't given me that 100%. I have a couple of ways I'm thinking about going. But at least anyway, we will revisit this again. We will pick it back up again. Trust me on that. It's just that I don't want you, like I said, to just become kind of bored and not totally gleaning all this here. Got that? Amen? Are you agreement in agreement with that? Okay, good. Well, if not... You have, to, <laughs> you have to speak to the Holy Spirit because it was his idea, not mine. So anyway, the last time we were together, we talked about the fact that there were um, some interloping pagans. And it's so interesting. Well, let me just go with that. The interloping pagans who did not prosper in the land because they just didn't fear the Lord, plain and simple. So the king of Assyria sent back one of the priests whom he had taken captive in order to teach people how to fear the Lord. And the result was a religion that blended elements of truth and paganism. Now, I think this is very interesting because in a lot of ways, we're kind of dealing with that today. Um, We're dealing with a time where people, even Christians who know what is correct and they know what the word says, they're just sort of kind of like blending in with everything and everything is not so clear. And that's something that we have to guard our own spirits you know, we, we got to pay attention. You can't just listen to everything and everyone and just think that it's okay. It's got to line up with the word of God. And this, we're living in a time now where, I mean, you see what's happening in our, in our city this weekend. It's just different. We're living in a different time. And we just have to make sure that we're clear on what it is that we believe, what it is that we stand for, and still allow the love of God to just permeate through us so that we can still be a 
blessing to everybody, minister to everybody. We're supposed to do that. But I'm just saying we still have to be very clear and don't just kind of get sucked into not understanding who we are and whose we are and what it is that we believe. Amen. So in this particular instance with these people, in other words, they still claim to worship Jehovah as God, but they founded their own priesthood, built their own temple and devised a sacrificial system of their own making. In short, they made a whole new religion based in large part on pagan traditions. The Samaritan's religion is a classic example of what happens when the authority of scripture is reduced to human tradition. The original site of the Samaritan's church was on Mount Gerizim, Gerizim rather, in Samaria. The temple was built during the time of Alexander the Great, but it had been destroyed about 125 years before the birth of Christ. Gerizim was still deemed holy by the Samaritans. However, they were convinced the mountain was the only place where God could properly be worshipped. That is what the Samaritan woman declared to Jesus in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter and the 20th verse, which is something that we talked about the last time we were together. Now, obviously, this was one of the chief points under dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans, because remember, they were constantly not in agreement with one another. Okay, this is a day, a small group, to this day, a small group of Samaritans and their descendants still worship on Mount Gerizim, because they feel as if this is the only place in which they can do that. So many of the original Israelite descendants who later returned to Samaria from captivity were also the product of intermarriage with pagans. So the culture of Samaria suited them absolutely perfectly. Now, of course, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as a mongrel race and their religion as a mongrel religion. That is why during the time of Christ, such pains were taken to avoid all travel through Samaria. Remember we talked about that, how people would go all out of their way just so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. They just really totally avoided it because they looked at the entire region as being unclean. But in this instance, Jesus's face was set for Jerusalem. And as he had done before in John's gospel, the fourth chapter and the fourth verse, and we know because it simply says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, the reason it was so important was because he wanted to show that he was the savior of all people. That's why when I reference what's going on in our city this weekend, and for those who are hearing this and not knowing what's going on in New York, this is like the Mecca of the gay parade that's going on this weekend. We as believers have to be careful in what we believe, but we must also know that Jesus died for everybody. So the whole point of the matter is we are still to treat everyone lovingly because the same way that Jesus stretched his arms and died for each of us, he stretched his arms and died for everybody, including all of the people in, now I'm going to get these initials, I hope it's not right, the LGBTQ community. I think I got it right. Anyway, he still died for all of them as well. So we need to understand that. We need to realize that and we can minister 
minister to them just like we would minister to anybody else. Because remember, somebody took the time to minister to you. And we must always, always remember that. So the point is, Jesus is giving us that example in the sense that he already knew what was going on in Samaria. He already knew that that was not God's best or what God wanted. However, he made it a point to know that that's where he wanted to go through on his particular journey. He chose the more direct route through Samaria. Along the way, he and his followers would need places to eat and spend the night because that's what they did back then. Since the party traveling with Jesus was fairly large, he sent messengers ahead to arrange accommodations. Now, because it was obvious that Jesus was headed for Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Samaritans were of the opinion that all such feasts and ceremonies ought to be observed on where? Mount Gerizim. Jesus's messengers were refused all accommodations. The Samaritans not only hated the Jews, but they also hated the worship that took place in Jerusalem. They therefore had no interest in Christ's agenda at all. Absolutely not. He represented everything Jewish that they despised. So they immediately rejected the request. The problem was not that there was no room for them in the end. The problem was that the Samaritans were being deliberately inhospitable. If Jesus intended to pass through their city on his way to Jerusalem to worship, they were going to make it as hard as possible for him. They hated the Jews and their worship as much as the Jews hated them and their worship. As far as the Samaritans were concerned, turnabout, turnabout was fair play. That's terrible. But you know what? People are still doing that today, too. Now, of course, Jesus had never shown anything but goodwill toward the Samaritans. I mean, remember, he had healed a Samaritan's leprosy and commended that man for his gratefulness. Turn with me to Luke's gospel, the 17th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 16. Luke's gospel, the 17th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 16. When you get a chance, you can look at it in the Living Bible, and I'll read it to you quickly out of the Amplified. It says, And he lay face downward at Jesus' feet, thanking him over and over. He was a Samaritan. Now, if you look at this in the Message Bible, because the Message Bible backs it up to verse 14, and it says, Taking a good look at them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. They went, and while still on their way, became clean. One of them, when he realized that he was healed, turned around and came back, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful. He couldn't thank him enough, and he was a Samaritan. He had accepted water, also where? From a Samaritan woman, and given her the water of life. Now turn to John's gospel. And I know that you're really familiar with this, but we're just going to go over it anyway. John's gospel, the fourth chapter, and we're going to look starting at verse seven, and I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And it says, then a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone off into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman asked him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew 
about God's gift of eternal life and who it was who says, give me a drink, you would have asked him instead and you would have and he would have given you living water, eternal life. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, no bucket and rope and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and who used to drink from it himself and his sons and his cattle also? Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, satisfying his thirst for God, welling up, continually flowing, bubbling within him to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not get thirsty nor have to continually come all the way here to draw. At this, Jesus said, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I do not have a husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I do not have a husband for you have had five husbands and the man you are now living with is not your husband. You have said this truthfully. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place where one ought to worship is in Jerusalem at the temple. Jesus replied, woman, believe me, a time is coming when God's kingdom comes, when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not know what you worship. We Jews do know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and is already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, from the heart, the inner self, and in truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, the source of life, yet invisible to mankind. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ, the anointed. And when he comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. Just then his disciples came and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. However, no one said, what are you asking about? Or why are you talking to her? Then the woman left her water jar and went into the city and began telling the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed? Now keep in mind, the Jews considered Samaritan women ceremonially unclean. The woman's response is due to the fact that living water was the normal description for running water. She probably thought that Jesus was referring to the underground water source that fed the well. I mean, so she still obviously was not getting it. Okay. Um, Jacob renamed Israel and that you can find in Genesis 32. Verse 28, was the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, and father of the 12 sons who established 
the 12 tribes of Israel. God does not regard cohabitation as marriage. Okay, so there's nothing new under the sun. He still doesn't, okay? Marriage is a binding legal covenant between a man and a woman. So that is why he said to her exactly what he said. Um, also, now you're already in John. So what I want you to do is let's just drop down. Yeah, well, actually, we're just going to read 30 because we already did. We're in chapter four. I already read to you verses 25 and 26. So if we just read 30 and if I read it out of the message, I'm going to read you 28 to 30 out of the message. The woman took the hint and left after, you know, all the disciples came back. She realized, OK, I'm kind of like out of place. So she took the hint and left in her confusion. She left her water pot. But back in the village, she did tell all the people, come see this man who knew all about the things who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. So this is no different than what we definitely should be doing. Meaning, again, and you hear me say this all the time, people get very uptight when it comes to leading people to Christ. They take on this whole heaviness, like it's such a hard job. No, it's not. All you have to do is share the good news of Jesus and what he's done in your life. You don't have to go through how many scriptures do you know? And are you saying the right scripture and you need to do it in order? No different than you would tell people about a great movie or a great restaurant. You can tell him about the must. You can tell them about the Messiah. Tell them about what he has done in your life. It is just that plain and just that simple. And that's what the Samaritan woman actually did. Now, Jesus also stayed in that woman's village for two days. And in doing that, he actually evangelized her neighbors. And that you're still in John's gospel, the fourth chapter. If you drop down to verses 39 through 45, it says that if we look at it in the amplified, it says now many Samaritans from that city believed in him and trusted him as savior. Let's put a pin there. Why did they believe him and trusted him as Savior. Where did it start? It started with her going all around the city telling people about him. So it all starts with one person. So you can go ahead and say something to one person and you can start people questioning it and wanting to know. And that to me is really, really exciting. So anyway, because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to remain with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed in him with a deep abiding trust because of his word, his personal message to them. And they told the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, for now we have heard him for ourselves and know with confident assurance that this one is truly the savior of all the world. After the two days, he went on from there into Galilee for Jesus himself declared that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him since they had seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast for they too came to the feast. Now, what he actually did when you stop to think about it is Jesus made a Samaritan 
a hero of one of his best known parables. So that to me is something that we all can draw from too, because again, he is using someone that you wouldn't think he would have chosen, someone that would not be considered the best choice, the greatest choice. And he ended up using that person and made her a person that we can all learn from, we can all glean from, and actually really, like it says, a hero of one of his best known parables. So to me, I find that extremely encouraging. Now what I want you to do is turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter, and we're gonna look at verses 30, through 37. Luke 10 verses 30 through 37 and I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he encountered robbers who stripped him of his clothes and belongings, beat him and went their way unconcerned, leaving him half dead. Now, by coincidence, a priest was coming down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also came down to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan foreigner who was traveling came upon him, and when he saw him, he was deeply moved with compassion for him and went to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them to soothe and disinfect the injuries. And he put him on his own pack animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, which we already discussed before, it's really two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. Which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who encountered the robbers? He answered, the one who showed compassion and mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and constantly do the same. Later, he would command his disciples to preach the gospel in Samaria. And we all know this particular scripture because we refer to it all the time. Acts, the book of Acts, the first chapter and verse eight. And I'm going to share it with you in the Amplified, it says, but you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to tell people about me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, this is important because this is telling the disciples that when you receive this power, as we know, when you're filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking with other tongues, you can even, if you break this down with how we're studying it, you'll be able to share with people who would ordinarily almost be considered people in enemy territory because Samaria was in enemy territory based upon Jewish tradition. However, this is letting them know that this power source that they're going to receive, they're going to be able to minister to those people as well. So what does that mean to us? We can also minister those to those people, to everybody when we receive that power source. And if you look at it in the message, it says he told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is the father's business. What you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. 
He had always been full of kindness and goodwill toward the Samaritans. So that means that we're supposed to, again, he's giving us an example of how he constantly walked with love in everything he did. And that's the same thing as his representatives were supposed to do. But now they were treating him, meaning Jesus, with deliberate contempt. James and John, the sons of thunder, were instantly filled with passionate outrage. They already had in mind a remedy for this situation, and that we can find in Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter and the 54th verse. If we look at it in the Amplified, it says, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? If we look at it in the message, it says, when it came close to the time for his ascension, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead. They came to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his hospitality. But when the Samaritans learned that his destination was Jerusalem, they refused hospitality. When the disciples, James and John, learned of it, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of light, lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? And the New King James Version says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, the reference to Elijah was full of significance. The incident to which James and John were referring had taken place in this very region that they were. They were familiar with the Old Testament account and they knew its historical relevance to Samaria. We see here how deeply the Jews felt their resentment towards Samaria. It was a matter of historical fact that the name of Samaria had been associated with idolatry and apostasy, a total desertion from one's religion, principles, etc. Long before the Assyrian conquest, Samaria was originally the name of one of the most important cities in the northern kingdom. Now, during Ahab's reign, in the days of Elijah, because I want you to get this, Samaria was turned into a center for Baal worship. Turn with me to 1 Kings. So we're going to spend a little time in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 1 Kings, the 16th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 32 and 33. Let me know when you're there. Okay, y'all sound real enthused. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, First Kings 16. See, it just proves we don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Okay. Are you there now? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so the 16th chapter, starting with verse 32, in the New King James Version, it says, Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, this is why I like different translations, because that's cute and it's nice, but the message breaks it down more. The message puts it this way. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. 
Ahab, son of Omri, was king over Israel for 22 years. He ruled from Samaria. Now, I'm putting pause here. Doesn't that say a whole lot more and give us a lot more information than what we just read in the New King James? That's why you have to have different translations. Okay. Ahab, son of Omri, did even more open evil before God than anyone yet a new champion in evil. It wasn't enough for him to copy the sins of Jeroboam. Wait a minute. I hate these names. Jeroboam. Okay. Son of Nebat. No, he went all out. First by marrying Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and then by serving and worshiping the god of Baal. He built a temple for Baal, in Samaria, and then furnished it with an altar for Baal. Worse, he went on and built a shrine to the sacred whore Asherah. Hmm. He made the God of Israel angrier than all the previous kings of Israel put together. Now, these are the same two verses in the message, but it tells us a whole lot more than just the King James Version in my opinion. This is where Ahab had built his famous ivory palace. And we know that because if you just go right on over, you're already in Kings, First Kings, turn to the 22nd chapter, and we're going to look at verse 39. First Kings, 22nd chapter, verse 39. The New King James Version says, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And then if we look at it in the message, it says the rest of Ahab's life, everything he did, the ivory palace he built, the towns he founded and the defense system he built up is all written up in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. He was buried in the family cemetery and his son Ahaziah was the very next king. Now, Ahab's palace became the permanent residence for subsequent kings of the northern kingdom. In fact, it was the very place where King Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber and was seriously injured. Now, that we can tell, and you can, you know, you can actually just go and look there, but if you really need a reference, it's in 2 Kings, the first chapter, and the second verse. And it just basically tells you that, well, I should read it to you. Okay, 2 Kings, first chapter, second verse. If you look at it in the New King James Version, it says, Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria, and he was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the king of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Now, if we look at this in the easy-to-read version, it says, One day Ahaziah was on the roof of his house in Samaria. He fell down through the wooden bars on top of his house and was badly hurt. He called messengers and told them, go to the priests of Baal, Zebub, the god of Ekron, and I will and ask them if I will get well from my injuries. We look at it in the message. It says one day he fell through the balcony railing on the rooftop of his house. And then, of course, he sent the messengers. Now, it's interesting. We see either it was lattice work 
or it was just wooden bars, or it was a railing on a balcony. Somewhere it was something, okay, um, that he actually fell from. Now, it also doesn't tell us how many feet it is. It just says that it's the rooftop of a palace. So if you imagine a palace, it's probably more than two floors. And even if you fall two floors, I mean, that can be detrimental. But all through it, it does say that, you know, he obviously was sick or, you know, it wasn't a good injury. Now, a lattice, everybody pretty much knows, I think, what it is. It's like a screen and or it's a grate made of crisscross wooden strips. And that's OK. So it could have been really a decorative window for all we know, window covering or railing. We don't know. But in any case, it was flimsy and it was not designed for a man to lean upon. That was not why it was there. So apparently, excuse me, Ahaziah carelessly backed into it and when it gave way, he fell to the ground from the upper level of the palace. Now, Ahaziah was the son and successor of Ahab. His mother, Jezebel, was still living during his reign and still exercising her evil influence through her son's throne. When Ahaziah's accident occurred, the injuries were apparently life-threatening, and he wanted to know his fate. So he dispatched, dispatched messengers and sent them because he wanted to know exactly was he going to recover. He really wasn't sure. So he wanted them to go find that out. So here's the thing, though. You see, inquiring of soothsayers, which is a fancy way of saying people who are predictors of the future, was strictly forbidden by Moses' law. Of course. If you look at Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, and, okay, i got to read it. Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to do it out of, I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. A good translation when you get the opportunity is to read it out of the easy to read. But I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. And it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire as a sacrifice, one who uses divination and fortune-telling, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a charm or spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or, I love this word, a necromancer. That's the word of the week. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's not one that we hear often. Um, and a necromancer is one who actually seeks the dead. Okay? For everyone who does these things is utterly repulsive to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now, to me... I mean, in any translation you read, like if you read these same things, if you drop down to verse 12 in the New King James Version, it says, For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. This is not something that the Lord wants. But now here's the thing. There are people, and there are even Christians, who are believing God for, say, a healing, a manifestation of their healing. And they're wondering why it's taking so long. And they will actually go to what is known as spiritualist healers, who they believe are going to help them receive the manifestation of their healing. Then they wonder why they don't receive it. 
It says right here, when you do things like that, it's repulsive unto the Lord. And we already know where does healing come from. It comes from God. Because even if you do the best you know how to do, and even if you go to doctors, doctors can only like mend and sew. They are not the ones who provide the healing. Only God does that. Jesus took care of that for us when he suffered his stripes for us on the cross. So when people get caught up in that kind of stuff, it's never going to end up the way they think because it's something that is repulsive to God. So just, you know, that's just something, if you know of anybody like that, you might want to kind of share that with them just so that they don't fall into that trap because that's, <laughs> that's really, really not a good place to be. So anyway, seeking prophecies from fortune tellers, who were associated with Baal? Zebub was even worse. Baal Zebub was a Philistine deity. His name actually meant Lord of the Flies. Now, the land of the Philistines was thick with flies. I mean, the insects, flies. It was really thick with them. And the Philistines believed the Lord of the Flies lived in their land. So they made this fly god <laughs> one of their main deities. Hmm. They had some famous oracles who claimed to be able to tell the future. They usually gave flattering prophecies with predictions so ambiguous they could hardly miss. In other words, they just threw some stuff out there that it could mean anything. You could interpret it as anything. So they couldn't be said to be wrong. It just kind of like it was just ambiguous. Just throw it out there. But these oracles nonetheless had gained fame throughout Israel. <laughs> they were kind of like the Psychic Friends Network <laughs> of Elijah's time. But Baalzebub was a vile, it was, it was as vile a deity as anyone ever invented. He supposedly ruled the flies, those abhorrent insects that swarm around every kind, and when you listen to this, every kind of decay and filth and spread disease and spawn maggots. Oh, gosh. I mean, when I thought about that, I'm like, I don't ever want a fly to come anywhere near me. <laughs> okay, because all of that they do. Now, it was a fitting image for this kind of God, when you think about it. Who would ever think of worshiping a deity whose realm was everything foul and unclean? Such a God was so revolting to the Jews that they altered the name Baal-zebub slightly to make it Beelzebub, which is what we're more familiar with hearing, which means, oh, this is terrible. It actually means God of dung. Now, we all know what dung is. This vile being epitomized everything impure and unholy, everything that opposes the true God. That is why by the time of Jesus, the name Beelzebub had become a way to refer to Satan. And I can prove it to you. Turn to Luke's gospel, the 11th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 15. Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter, verse 15. If we look at it in the New King James Version, it says, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. If we look at it in the easy to read, it says, But some of the people said he uses the power of Satan to force demons out of people 
Satan is the ruler of demons. Hmm. And if we look at it in the Amplified, it says, but some of them said he drives out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Satan, the ruler of the demons. And a deity, I mean, definitely, as I said, it's a deity worshipped by the Philistine city of Ekron. It's terrible. And they also considered Baal Zebub, Lord of high places, Lord of the flies. Just, ugh. I mean, anyway, okay. So, this was the God from whom Ahaziah sought knowledge. Can you imagine? Of the future. So, the Lord sent Elijah the Tishbit to intercept the messengers. Now, scripture tells us, you got to go back to 2 Kings. And we're going to look at the first chapter, verses 3 and 4. 2 Kings, the first chapter, verses 3 and 4. So, okay, if I read it out of the New King James Version, it says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbit, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. Now, if we look at it in the easy to read, it says, but the Lord's angel said to Elijah the Tishbit, King Ahaziah has sent some messengers from Samaria. Go meet those men and ask them, there is a God in Israel. So why are you men going to ask questions of Baal? Sebhub, the god of Ekron. Since you did this, the Lord says, you will not get up from your bed, you will die. Then Elijah left. Um, and then it's really pretty much the same thing in the Amplified Bible. The only thing is, it says, it is because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. It's not asking, it's a statement. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You, Ahaziah, will not leave the bed on which you lie, but you will certainly die. So, of course, Elijah departed. Um, now, <laughs> this king is not the brightest at all, okay? Elijah did as he was told, and he sent the prophecy back to Ahaziah via the king's messengers. The messengers did not even know who Elijah was. When they reported back to the king, they simply told him the prophecy had been given them by a man who came up to meet us. I mean, you know, that's all that they really, really knew. So you're back. Go back to Second Kings. Stay there because that's where you're going to kind of be. So go back to Second Kings and just drop down. We're going to read verses seven and eight. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it? This is king, the king asking his messengers, what kind of man? And then they're just saying, you know, they don't know. It was just somebody who met them and said some words. So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbit. He knew exactly who it was. If we look at it in the easy to read and you look at verse 8, it says, they answered Ahaziah, this man was wearing a hairy coat with a leather belt around his waist. Then Ahaziah said, that was Elijah the Tishbit. He knew exactly who it was. Um, and 
it says really when you think about it most likely a reference to Elijah's hairy outer garment it was because it was made out of you know the 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 skins of animals like a goat a sheep or camel skin I mean that's you know what they had during that time and the band or girdle worn by men during this time was not a modern belt <laughs> as we know it but it was actually more like you could say almost like a sash or a band that was six inches wide and it had clasps or fasteners in the front it was worn around the loins the midsection of the body between the lower ribs and the hips and it was really normally made out of leather um, expensive or embroidered girdles were also worn and they were also made of cotton flax or silk the girdle also served as a kind of pocket or pouch and was used to carry personal items such as a <laughs> this is interesting personal items such as a dagger <laughs> money or other necessary things which when you think about it they probably did need that to defend themselves you know whatever so that's <laughs> That's kind of like what they used <laughs> during that time. So here's the thing. Ahaziah instantly knew who Elijah was. Here's why. Elijah had been Ahab and Jezebel's nemesis or big enemy for years. So <laughs> he was well known to Ahaziah. Naturally, Ahaziah hated him and probably decided right then and there to kill him. And if you go to, just go right on down, you're in 2 Kings, the first chapter, drop down to the ninth verse. And we're going to pick it up there, and I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And it says, Then the king, this is key, the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 with his 50 fighting men to seize the prophet. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill. And the captain said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of 50, So if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 fighting men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So King Ahaziah again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 fighting men. And he said to him, Man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 fighting men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So Ahaziah, he's not smart at all, okay, again sent a captain of a third 50 with his 50 fighting men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came, bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him for compassion and said to him, Oh man of God, please let my life and the lives of your servants, these 50, be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he stood and went down with him to the king. Then Elijah said to Ahaziah, thus says the Lord, since you have sent messengers to inquire the Baal Zebub, God of Ekron, 
it is because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word. Therefore, you will not leave the bed on which you lie, but will die certain, but will certainly die. So Ahaziah, the son of King Ahab, died in accordance with the word of the Lord, which Elijah has spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram, his younger brother, became king of Israel, the northern kingdom, in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Hmm. All of this had taken place in the very region through which Jesus proposed to travel to Jerusalem. Now the story of, Je of Elijah's fiery triumph was well known to the disciples. It was one of the classic Old Testament episodes that would have been reminded, they, they would have been reminded of rather, by merely traveling through the district, like everybody knew. I mean, come on, fire coming down from heaven, consuming people. I mean, I think people would know about that, right? So when James and John, these wonderful sons of thunder, suggested fire from heaven as a fitting response to the Samaritans' inhospitality, they probably thought they were standing on a solid, solid precedent. After all, Elijah was not condemned for his actions. On the contrary, at that time and under those circumstances, it was the appropriate response from Elijah. But it was not a proper response from James and John. In the first place, their motives were all wrong. And we're going to end there. Okay, praise God. So when we come back, we'll find out a little bit more about these 12 ordinary men and how they definitely have an effect on our lives. But I really wanted to go through all of that because I didn't want to gloss over the fire coming down from heaven because you can just say, oh yeah, the fire came down from heaven. Okay, but that doesn't give you all the background and the detail and all the backstory. And as you study this more on your own, like I know, maybe you won't, but hopefully you will, you'll start to see, because remember how I said Jezebel was alive during her son's reign. And she did a whole bunch of evil stuff through his throne. And you can think about that. You know, she did some, some stuff. And she could use him, her son, as the king to get things done that she wanted done. So it's a lot of backstory. I mean, I think, you know, the Bible is so incredibly interesting. And I, I just, I hope you're getting something out of this. I am enjoying it. Because it's just so interesting to me. Because it's so layered. It's just so many different things. And you really can look at it in juxtaposition to what's happening right now. Which is amazing that all of this happened all those thousands of years ago. But we can relate to it right now and see what's going on. That is just really, that's why obviously <laughs> it's the greatest book ever written. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.